gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I have just concluded um, a solo, about two, just shy of two thousand mile drive from Denver to DC yesterday. Um, my wife and daughter flew home for various and sundry reasons we need not get into here, and left me alone in Denver with a car and a long drive ahead of me. And um, my understanding is that sometime early yesterday, early Monday, our guest was just doing some household chores, maybe washing some dishes. And then, like that scene from the old Time Life books uh, series where, was it Time Life books? Where Leonard Nimoy, no, it was in search of, I apologize. Where, no, it was both. Where... I can't now. I can't remember. I am. I, I really got to sober up. But it was someone was Mary Sue was doing di- was doing dishes when all of a sudden she got a cold chill, and then she found out later that so and so had done something whatever. And I hear that our guest Chris Starwalt dropped some dishware when I crossed over the border into West Virginia yesterday, um, and uh, he felt a strange disturbance in the force. And I felt like calling him and asking him whether I should like, you know, uh, throw some chicken feet over uh, <laughs> s- some some creek to take the curse off. But anyway, Chris Darwalt, uh, Mal, I get to say my colleague at the dispatch uh, is here today. He's going to catch me up on everything that I missed. And we're going to talk about various and sundry things. And uh, Chris, welcome back to the uh, to the dispatch. I mean, to the to the, the remnant. Sorry. Yeah, I've, I, every morning I'm welcomed back to the dispatch. It's a delight. Uh, number one, why you got to waste good chicken feet, uh, perfectly good <laughs> chicken feet that could be eaten or used to make stock uh, for their wonderful uh, collagen, uh, number one. Number two, I don't know what's worse, uh, your effort to describe the Leonard Nimoy slash Time Life book in search of uh, situation or the fact that after three words, my brain was so deeply imprinted by early 1980s television advertising that I immediately apprehended it. Yeah, and I do apologize. I'm going to get nothing but grief. We could we could literally put the Lincoln-Douglas ba- debates and... Uh, the the and and Cicero to shame for the rest of this podcast, <laughs> and all I'm going to do is get exactly. grief from people saying how I messed this up. And while you were while you were just talking, the for listeners who don't know this because they don't have the benefit of being as old as us, um, or they had done had more better things to do than constantly monitor commercials in the 1980s. I was mashing up the Time Life series Mysteries of the Unknown. You got it with the Leonard Nimoy show in search of, and they were basically not the same product or not related. I don't believe, but they were the same frequency in terms of both trying to, uh, suggest that the world was full of the occult and the weird and whatever. And there were all these commercials where they'd take two totally for the, for the time life thing. They take two totally random different things. And then, um, you know, Mary Sue was eating soup when 2,000 miles away, Don Knotts 
had soup spilled on him. Dismissed as coincidence. Anyway, uh, and it's been printed in my head ever since. So, And I will further say, a good time to see those commercials might be during the show, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Uh, a, a thing that younger people uh, cannot imagine is that such a show not only existed, but was pretty popular as people would would watch a full show version of exactly the kind of easily explainable coincidences and normal things passed off as uh, fascinating mysteries. Yes. Also, there was, remember, what, what was it? Um, What was the scary show late at night with the hand coming out of the ground? Chiller. Do you remember that? Or is that oh, the yeah. regional thing? No, well, no, I it, they, we did not have that in West Virginia, but that was, uh, what was that called? was like a theater one of those yeah 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 late like the uh, the the local elvira yeah i'm looking for it now we'll put it in the show notes the <laughs> it was chill it was chiller theater and it basically had i mean this should this should conjure images from your childhood it was a and i don't mean the tv show it it's a giant hand coming out of a blood swamp yeah um which that was know, growing up yeah that was yeah. growing up we you know country club for brunch on easter and then hands out of the blood swamp, and that's how you knew. There you go. All right. So, um, again, thank you for doing this. My apologies to listeners for the rough start. Listeners don't know that we've actually had several technological uh, problems in the, the very first minutes of this. And, in fact, um, both Chris and I now have long beards because uh, <laughs> we've been doing this for so long. So, But we'll leave that aside. Uh, so I, I got some just sort of sort of factual questions for you, Chris, because yeah, as you know, I've been driving around the country and I haven't been like totally immersed in this stuff. All right, I have a theory and I want to know whether I'm right or wrong. And I suppose I should just have you explain things rather than propose how I could be wrong first. But um, <laughs> uh, that's just not how we roll around here. I, I like I like that approach to argumentation, though. <laughs> um, so with a few problems legitimate problems notwithstanding about the uh georgia law um like the the water thing and and whatever um is it is it right that basically a big chunk of what the georgia thing did was actually just pull back a bit from what happened during the pandemic and the democrats have the sort of reverse ratchet thing where they think Anything that pulls back on what happened during the pandemic is, uh, forget the Jim Crow stuff, is a restriction on voting rights when, in fact, we, we loosened up our procedures so much during the pandemic for, I would argue, totally legitimate reasons. And now that we're tightening them up, it's, they're saying, no, 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 it can't get any tighter than what we had during the pandemic. Because every time I dip into this, that's kind of how I feel, a lot of it feels. Where am I wrong? Um, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think, um, uh, some of what was done, not just in Georgia, but, uh, maybe less in Georgia than other places. Georgia actually did a, the, the irony of all of this is <clears throat> Georgia runs a pretty good election. Uh, Georgia has a pretty good track record on elections. Uh, and there is a pretty high degree of professionalism, uh, in their vote counting stuff. But, um, this is a, <clears throat> this is like faction and liberty. We don't want unelected people to ultimately be in charge of how we conduct elections for various reasons, because accountability is important there. But at the same time, when you have 
partisans who are in charge of election processes, uh, there's going to be motivated reasoning. There's going to be, this is just inherent to the thing. It's sort of like gerrymandering. Uh, would you rather have no gerrymandering or would you rather take away the power from the states to set their own congressional districts? In some states, there were changes made to voting rules for the coronavirus. And here, Pennsylvania is a good example uh, that were, that happened to be, I'm not going to ascribe motive, that happened to coincide with Democratic beliefs about what kinds of election rules favor their voters versus Republican voters. And there happened to be, in the Georgia legislation, rules that happen to correlate with what Republican think what Republicans think will be bad for Democratic voters. The big the the uh, there's a lot of stupid attention being paid to this thing about you can't bring people a bottle of water if they're waiting in line and stuff like that. But you it's it's the kind of stuff that only th- these kinds of people. When I say these kinds of people, I mean people who are into this kind of minutia. You can have a table set up over here to hand out donuts and beverages, but you can't deliver it to the person in line, blah, 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 blah. Okay, whatever. The big change is they went, they cut the number of weeks in which you have to apply for an absentee ballot basically in half. I think it's down to nine weeks now. Um, There isn't... Uh, and there are also restrictions on things like uh, whether or not uh, so counties can no longer send out uh, uh, requests for absentee ballots on their own. I don't think that was addressed in state law before at all. Um, but some counties in Georgia uh, did send out, hey, if you want an absentee ballot, sign the line and we'll send you one. Uh, so that's now prohibited strictly. Uh, and then there are rules about and this is going to cause terrible trouble in the future. Uh, there are rules about when the state can intervene, how soon the state can intervene to take over the count in some place. So this you could call this the Fulton County legislation. Fulton County is the most important Democratic county in Georgia. And Fulton County, like a lot of large urban-centered places, is real slow counting, not just because they have the large volume, but often because you don't have very effective government and, and that kind of stuff. You, bureaucracy doesn't work. Um, so now the state can intervene at a sooner point. I forget the number of days, five days, I think, uh, because Republicans say it's outrageous that it took so long to count. Um, that, doesn't have, that doesn't have anything to do with anything uh, except for Republicans' efforts to probably get control of, uh, of, of Democratic county uh, procedures. But the core of this is cutting the number of weeks in which you can get an absentee ballot. And that is predicated on a misplaced Republican belief that more turnout is bad for them. Of all of the fool's errands, of all of the stupid things that I have observed parties do, pretty high on the list now is the degree to which the old wives' tales about Republican turnout and those things and the sort of urban legends about it, which had some salience in the 40s, 50s, 60s, but are now demonstrably untrue, uh, goes into their efforts to suppress access to voting and all that other stuff. It's just, it, it's, it's a bunch of bunkum. Yeah, and I want to highly recommend um, 
the episode of this podcast that you guest hosted on with Darren Shaw, which was very good on this point. This is something I, I, I first wrote about this, you know, almost 15 years ago for NR about how there is this myth that if everybody votes, right, if we had Australia's kind of right, voting or Brazil or voting, Russia, yep, right, where it's mandatory, um, um, that Democrats would always win. And, and part of the, what's in there is this sort of kernel of a morsel of a crumb underneath the couch cushion of Marxist theory of if you could actualize the class consciousness of the lumpen proletariat, they would vote on their interests. And of course, since there's so many poor people, they would all vote for the, the, the Democrats. And the Democrat liberals tend to really believe this, this myth. And Republicans really tend to think they're right too. <laughs> and um, and the problem is, is that every time I've talked to a political scientist about this, and every now and then I'll ask, like, is this still the case? Because it seems so counterintuitive given the way this stuff is talked about. Um, uh, they'll say, you know, look, I mean, obviously it depends on the candidates and the election, but as a rule of thumb, if everybody turned out, the elections would turn out remarkably similarly to the way they've already turned out. And, and as one political scientist once explained it to me, he's like, we can predict, at least this used to be the case before polls went a little cattywampus, we can predict how the election is going to come out with a sample size if it's representative of enough of likely voters of like 1200 people out of a country of 331 million people. So why would you think a poll on election day of like a hundred million people wouldn't be a lot more accurate of what the entire country thinks, you know, and it's, it's just one way to think about it. And I, I think you're right, but um, I guess it, the, you know, there's this thing in politics you've right. Know it far better than I do about how, Big events, especially elections, they're kind of like um, wet clay. And everybody gets like 48 hours or three weeks to pound and beat on it and try to turn it into their version of the golden calf. That becomes the conventional wisdom, and then everybody has to worship it. And the weird thing about this last election is that the Democrats, it used to be that the Republicans wanted to pretend there wasn't a pandemic and that we changed the rules to account for it. And now the Democrats want to pretend that there wasn't a pandemic and we changed the rules to protect it. And they want to make it sound like these reforms or these changes that we had to account for the fact that it would, like, could kill people to have them vote never happened and that we're just sort of like reversing long-term trends here. Well, Georgia, uh, what is the saying? Hard cases make for bad law. Georgia's a, Georgia's a tough one because this law does do things that if if the law said we're just going to go back to the way things were it would be it it wouldn't be uncontroversial but it should be this law does things that weren't in place before and it gives the state powers that it didn't have before but yes generally speaking the and this applies not just to i am deeply offended well maybe I, let me let me do this your depiction about the wet clay my favorite example on that is the 1964 election, the most misinterpreted election in American history. Uh, Barry Goldwater lost the 1964 election in a landslide because he was too kooky. He was too extreme for Americans of the day. What this, of course, forgets is the Republicans could have nominated the risen Lord in 1964 less than a year after JFK was murdered in cold blood 
on Dealey Plaza with uh, LBJ running wrapped in his bloody shirt. No Republican was going to beat LBJ under those circumstances. But the desired outcome, what what people wanted the lesson to be was that Goldwater was that lost because of his extremism. Uh, Kennedy and Goldwater were going to campaign together in 1964. They were looking forward to a good race uh, with against each other and holding debates, blah, 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 blah. So, yes, the pandemic stuff, Democrats are using the pandemic to say we want the things that we always want. H.R. 1, the Democratic voting rights suite of legislation that Barack Obama and others say proves the filibuster's racist is is what they always want, right? They always want it. Um, And they're going to use the pandemic to say that they need it more. Uh, Partisans will use any tool at hand to try to advance their argument. That's why I try not to listen to them too much. Yeah, and I, I should, before it sounds like I am like all of a sudden defending everything in the Georgia law, I'm not. And I'm really not defending what they tried to do in Arizona. Bad. You know, uh, one of the great, one of my great frustrations is, is like, I'm someone who actually thinks voting should be more difficult in this country and that it should be, um, it should be the, uh, rather than the gateway drug to civic engagement, it should be the door prize after, you know, or not the door prize. It should be the, you know, the last boss. The last ball, yeah, it should be like, you know, it's the, it's the next level thing after you've done your homework and you're sort of involved and all that kind of stuff. And and yet, I just don't feel very comfortable making those arguments right now when you have Republicans who like legit just want to signal out, single out voters that they don't like from being able to vote. And I think that's grotesque. And um, uh, and so I'm, I'm Forget, very torn forgetful. About this Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Well, forgetfulness plays a big part in this like it does with all things. So crime is like this. Uh, A lot of things are like this. Republicans have convinced themselves that voter fraud is a huge problem in the United States. What they don't accept in the same way, Democrats are like this about crime rates. Uh, or Republican, uh, Republicans are like this about crime rates, crime rates. Democrats are like this about racism and other issues. It's better now than it's ever been, right? Elections in the United States now are cleaner and less susceptible to fraud than at any point in our history. And in the 1960s, speaking of JFK, what happened in 1960 in Illinois is just not possible in, in the way that it was then. Uh, the mass, I'm from West Virginia. The massive corruption, again, JFK, uh, the massive scale of corruption and vote buying and ballot box stuffing and all of the things that were part of American political life to the 1980s, right? That was just part of how you did it. <clears throat> you still see it crop up from time to time. Fraud is still real. People buy votes. People do that stuff. But it is Demo- Republicans have convinced themselves that election fraud is this terrible, terrible problem in the country. And how much of that is motivated reasoning so they have an excuse to try to suppress turnout among voters who they believe will disadvantage them? I can't say, but it's got to be part of it. And what makes it all so dumb is that they're even wrong about that. Yeah, and I would just point out it works the other way as well, where Democrats say, you know, Zoe Lofgren said, speaking for H.R. 1, that in 2000, in the 2020 election, we saw unprecedented levels of voter suppression. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, right. really? Exactly. It was the biggest, 
biggest turnout in American history, or the biggest turnout in the century by percentage terms, and biggest turnout in raw numbers ever. And your guy won by a sizable, you know, significant margin. And like the takeaway from this is our voters were suppressed. Yes, I mean, it's just, exactly. The worst. A lot it's of the worst. The, tell tell Nathan Bedford Forrest and the Ku Klux Klan about <laughs> right. how bad how bad voter suppression was in the 2020 election. <laughs> All right, so uh, I, I, let's let's circle back because I'm uh, I'm I clearly smoked too much weed this morning. Um, <laughs> yet again, um, why why does this weed keep ending up in my mouth? No, uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, you mentioned 1964. Um, uh, One point about that. Another reason why. One well, other thing that gets left out is that. Barry Goldwater, praise be upon him, uh, was after he was ripped off by uh, the Nixon wing of the party, still worked hard for the Nixon Nixon slash Rockefeller wing of the party. And then the Nixon Rockefeller wing of the party said, screw you and didn't show up for him. And in 64 and um, and the graciousness of the Goldwater wing of the party towards the non Goldwater wing was always much greater than the other way around. And for everybody who talks about how wonderful and nice moderate Republicans are, they were actually back then when they actually had power, they were pretty mean to serve. Still, still today, still today, um, the the Western concern. What Republicans really need is a rebirth of the Goldwater Reagan. It's not about replicating the policy sets exactly because different times call for different policies. As you, I, I am a great, I, I, I parrot you, I repeat you, I lift, I lift you up with hosannas, always for saying most of these questions are prudential. Most of the, like, how much, how little, how often, these are the questions that we'll just have to use our judgment to resolve. But the fact that Goldwater and Reagan were gentlemen, they were cheerful, they were good to deal with, they were... Um, mild-mannered and pleasant. They were attractive. And they were menches, as they say in West yeah, Virginia. They were menches. The, when you find a chicken feet, when you find chicken feet in a creek, you look up and you say, what kind of mensch would throw these out of his car window <laughs> for us to make into a fine broth? Uh, but I, I think that Eastern Republicans today, and I know that geographically it doesn't work the way it did, but Northeastern Republicans today are as mean as they were then, right? There's the same attitude. There's the same screw you attitude. There's the same hard nose kind of stuff uh, that that the Rudy Giuliani's of the world think is attractive, uh, that you got to be mean and you got to be hard and you got to be nasty. But not only does it not work, uh, it redounds to your disadvantage enormously. Barry Goldwater's comportment of himself in 1964 was crucial for Reagan's eventual success. If Goldwater had acted like the Eastern Republicans, right, if he had behaved himself the way that the New York Republicans did, the cause of conservatism would not have been nearly as successful. Yeah, so um, uh, while I have very few kind words to say about Rudy Giuliani these days, I do think that the, the New York Republican example is kind of sui generis just because New York New Yorkers are New Yorkers. I think the 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 ne plus ultra, the sine qua non, the dashboard saint of jackass East Coast Republicans must be by acclamation Arlen Specter. 
Very good. It's it's a very good one. Uh, I would say you've got Mayor Rizzo and uh, Specter. Philadelphia delivers the goods. You got Arlen Specter. You got Mayor Rizzo. Uh, you've got. Uh, I'm sure we can we can think of other Eastern Pennsylvania Republicans. Let's put it this way: Pat Toomey is not typical of America's experiences with Philadelphia and Environs uh, Republicans. Um. By the way, where was Arlen Specter born? Do you know? Uh, I do not know. Oh, if you if you if you may have once known this and forgotten. Okay. Uh, because and you'll know the second you hear it. Oh, because no. I I've seen the sign many many times, and I just saw it two days ago. When you drive through Russell, Kansas, there's a giant sign saying "Home of <laughs> Arlen Specter and Bob Dole." And Bob Dole. And Bob, Bob or maybe it's Dole. the other way around, but I mean, like, I, hope way, the, I hope it's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> For everybody's sake, fair enough. I, I guess Spectre's parents or dad was in the military in Kansas no, or something. I have no idea. I, I just think he was probably such a prick from such an early age that Kansans, God bless them, were like, get the hell out of here. And if you're if you, if you if you're a Kansan who loves Bob Dole and you find somebody to be too much of a prick, that guy really must be a prick. <laughs> that guy is like getting it done. I, I think I maybe I mentioned this recently on the podcast, but I was once doing a book signing in in Philly and these people came up and this lady came up and said, oh, I like you, blah, blah, blah. And we're chatting. And she's like, I love that thing you wrote about our inspector. And I was like, oh, really? Thanks. And she said, yeah, I worked for him for like 15 years. <laughs> and I was like, really? And, and she was like, oh, yeah, he was a, he was horrible. horrible. He was a monster. And then I was like, really? And you work for him? And she says, yeah, but hold on. Let me call Kate. And she called her friend over and her friend was like, tell him what what Arlen Specter was like, which he's a horrible human being, <laughs> horrible person. And I can't repeat some of the stories that I have been told because they're not mine to tell, but a gross, mean spirited, nasty person who every Senator, you know, um, senators have hideouts, uh, and, and they, they're their little getaway rooms. Uh, and in some, some cases they're boringly obvious. They're a conference room next to your office. Uh, but in some cases they're little secret spots behind staircases and all this stuff. Let's just say, uh, nobody was real happy about all of what was going on in Arlen Specter's hideaway. And we're just going to leave that Leave it right there. Bloop. <laughs> mystery to be solved. Um, Okay, so uh, the other question I have for you, since you've you've delved into this so much deeper than I have, um, talking about past election fraud type stuff. The last time I looked into it, the I mean the 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 the, the nice version of the story about Kennedy Nixon in '60 is that Nixon, and you heard this a lot in the wake of the Trump you know defeat, that Nixon was too much of a patriot and a citizen to uh, uh, question the results of the election. And he thought for the good of the country, he would just concede, even though he thought the election was stolen. The more cynical version of this is that Kennedy was just better at stealing it than Nixon was, and that Nixon, in fact, played games as well. Where do you come down on all that? I honestly don't have an opinion. I, do, I, don't, I honestly don't know. Well, uh, first, I think um, there's a third thing, which is... Nixon knew that it would not be in his self-interest to contest the election. And I think all three things are true to degrees, right? Um, go, let's go back to Philadelphia. 
uh, the suburban counties around Philadelphia, right, had Republican machines, right? We forget that there were big city Republican or, or large populous area Republican machines too. I don't know how Montgomery County, Pennsylvania Republicans organized or didn't organize things in 1960. Um, the way that election fraud works is like a lot of political misconduct. You create a permission structure in which you define the low end of your conduct based on not the real conduct of your opponent, but your perception of their conduct. So in current terms, if you're a Republican who believes that North Korean Zodiac boats are dropping uh, uh, fraudulent ballots uh, on the coast of Maine uh, or that uh, Hugo Chavez's ghost is getting into Symantec machines. If you actually believe those things, then what couldn't you do to steal an election, right? If that was true, it wouldn't matter whether you were being honest and forthright and patriotic because it's already too late for all of those niceties, sir. And it's the Flight 93 election syndrome playing out over and over again. Uh, in 1960, I'm sure that there were Republican, uh, uh, would we call it fraud? I'm sure there was fraud someplace. But as has been the case since the birth of big city America, big cities are the best places to steal elections because there's more voters there. You want to steal an election in Wyoming? Uh, <clears throat> you better pack extra gas in your trunk because you're going to be driving an awful long way uh, to get to every ranch uh, in order to do it. But in one precinct in a big city, you can do a lot of stealing. Um, and so it's not that Democrats are worse people or uh, historically worse people are more inclined to fraud. It is that they have, because of their polity, been had more opportunities so to do over time. Um, but landslide Lyndon Johnson, uh, his, you, you know that people understood the presence of election fraud based on the fact that his nickname was Landslide Lyndon for an election that everyone assumed he stole in the Pedronales Valley of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so election election fraud was part of the game, right? This was part of the game. Yeah, we're going to pack the ballot box. You, everybody knows the story about Edgar Allan Poe. We talked. I talked about it with Darren Shaw. When you let me drive the remnant slowly around the driveway on Sundays, <laughs> uh, but the, the Edgar Allan Poe that kind of voter fraud was assumed. It was it was factored in, and that's why. In 1960, Sam Giancana uh, and uh, Mayor Daley in Chicago could get up to what they were doing, that Lyndon Johnson could do what he did in Texas, assume, presumably in 1960, uh, and that the Democratic machines in Texas worked effectively, blah, 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 blah. Now, that kind of stuff is very hard to do for the same reason that a lot of things are harder to do. There's a record. We're tracing the stuff. It matches up. We have voter files. The idea that somebody could engage in widespread election fraud in a time with, when as soon as every election is over, partisans buy these voter files for the purposes of polling and market research and all of that other stuff. You think that if there were, you think if there were millions of fraudulent votes cast in the United States, somebody <laughs> wouldn't say, hey guys, this, uh, this, uh, we've got a hundred thousand votes here from a guy named Daffy Duck. This doesn't look right to me. Ah, well, never mind. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> Yeah, so this is, I mean, your point about how it's never been better and everybody thinks it's worse 
really is a good one and, and and it applies to so many things but like the weird nostalgia we have on the right for the 1950s and we think our democracy was so much healthier was yeah as a procedural matter not right not. and um i listened to I, go ahead go ahead no 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 I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I'm drunk with power from my brief hosting gig here. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and it works, you know, it, 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 on the racism thing. I mean, I, I write this column every 18 months because I feel compelled to about how by literally every single conceivable metric, America is less racist today. Forget a hundred years ago, forget 50 years, 20 years ago, you know, and um, we're among the top, we're among the, 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 the top 3% of least racist countries in the world. And there's this thing about how that, you know, the issue of white supremacy looms larger in people's minds than it did when we actually were a white supremacist country. It's a very weird, there's a lot of weird guilt stuff going on. There's weird guilt stuff. And there's also, we are so unaccustomed to things that they seem shocking, right? Uh, there used to be, uh, however many millions of bison roaming the United States. Uh, but if you see one on the George Washington Parkway, it would be really shocking. You would be really shocked to see a bison there. So part of it is that we are not accustomed to, I think crime works really well on this front. The place where I am sitting to talk to you now is a very Tony section of Capitol Hill near Eastern Market that 20 years ago, you would not have wanted to stand outside on the street of, right? That it would have been totally unacceptable. And now uh, I'm, I'm looking out my window and seeing people push strollers by cheerfully enjoying a beautiful spring day. Uh, so, so what we get used to is what matters, not what the trends are. And it's very hard. This, this is why all of our work in the most important work, and I say this as a, a as a as a Lausch historian and a guy who was a history major in college. That's why history is the essential work. The essential work of political philosophy has to be rooted in history because if we don't know what it was, we can't possibly explain what it is. As as one of my heroes, Seymour Martin Lips, used to say, "History is the mother of all social sciences." Right, um, exactly. Except for ethnomusicology, that one's just on its own. It's doing a great job. It, it really, it's it is <laughs> ethnomusicology is the, is the Rosetta Stone uh, Truly. for understanding comparative politics. All right, so uh, I, dispatch readers who don't subscribe to the LA Times, they'll be able to see it by the time this podcast uh, uh, reaches their ears. Um, I wrote my LA Times column. Uh, on this a little bit. I want to float another theory by you. Um, there is a weird paradox in our politics. Um, and that's that, that wrenching grinding sound that you just heard was me changing <laughs> gears here. So, uh, um, um, there's a weird paradox in our politics insofar as I think you will, you will agree with me. You will be willing to stipulate for the record that the basis of both parties very much wanted to destroy the other party in one yes. sense or another. Yes. Yes. Um, and yet because of that animus, they do the one thing that almost guarantees that will keep the other party alive, which is they, whenever they get in power, they shoot the moon, they go for the most aggressive policy agenda possible in part 
to own the cons or to own the libs, in part because they feel like the world was being stolen from them. So they have to seize, they have to maximize the opportunity and use their power any way they can. And that overreach in a dialectical fashion invites the resurgence of the other party. Meanwhile, which is what I think a lot of us thought Biden might actually do to bring it to the real world for a moment. If let's put it this way, if Biden had worked with Romney and Mansion and 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 uh, Susan uh, Susan Collins, Su- Susan Lisa Collins, Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski, that you know built up a sort of centrist gang of ten or fifteen or whatever Republicans, some Democrats, whatever, and forged an agreement with them about the pandemic relief stuff that pissed off the teachers unions to some extent, pissed off the base to some extent. Um, uh, that would do more to destroy the Republican party as we know it than any of these policy objectives, because what by, you know, and I go back to the Obama stimulus. If Obama had actually co-opted enough Republicans to make the stimulus bipartisan, his entire presidency would have been different. If Donald Trump had actually done what a lot of us thought he was going to do and did an infrastructure deal with Schumer, as two sort of Altacaca New Yorkers, um, you would have gotten half two, the Republican. Two what kind of New Yorkers? Altacaca. It's a Yiddish for old What head. is that? Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with Fakakta, but not <laughs> um, Altacaca. It's like Elder old, head. Old heads. Old heads. The guy who, you know, uh, uh, yelling at a deli who sends back soup, right? That guy. <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. Bernie Sanders. Yes. Yeah, no, like, like I remember, I think I actually said this on Special Report when I saw there was this thing where Schumer and Trump were arguing about something in the early part of the pre- of his presidency. And I was like, dude, as a New Yorker, I feel like they should be fighting over who hailed the cab first. Exactly, uh, exactly. Are we going to go to the second street? Nah, they're the worst. We're going to Carnegie. But uh, as, as, a, uh, as a former Fox News guy, I mean, I think you know cable news world better than most people. It is much harder to say the Democrats are all socialists, all evil, all uh, determined to use our churches as stables when um, a significant percentage of Republicans have voted for their agenda, right? And you would create a true con rhino civil war if you could actually peel off enough Republicans to vote for some of what Biden was doing. And you could use the outrage of the base of the Democratic Party as a way to prove your moderate bona fides to other moderates and independent Republicans. And yet this cycle perpetuates itself where each side tries to do everything party line based in part because they like Springvillians, they think everyone from Shelbyville is just not even worth talking to. And that that perpetuates this. I mean. I am convinced more and more that both parties are determined to be minority parties. That's sort of I, where I come down. I, I, I agree. Your, your two moons, uh, your two moons concept. I agree with, we have two parties that don't re- Now I think that's not true of Biden. I think Biden likes being president and wants to be president. Uh, and he wants to be an effective president and he wants to take his turn. And he, I think that's true, but I think the two parties, yes, the perverse incentives of duopoly 
It's the cola wars, right? It doesn't matter whether Coke or Pepsi wins. It just matters that we're fighting them and we're all drinking more cola. Um, <clears throat> and the, the problem, I think, though, is not the... I think the depiction of your opponent as history's worst monster uh, and the eliminationist rhetoric that both parties use, that if the other side wins, that we will all be destroyed. All of all of our hopes will be destroyed. Zoe Lofgren uh, and Donald Trump are saying the same thing, just in, you know, things have never been worse. We're closer to the edge. Uh, it's, all, it's all about to, we're, we're about to come unwound. <clears throat> this kind of thinking, the, as you call it, the catastrophization of American politics is a big part of the problem. But I think the motive is not to destroy, to destroy the other side. Uh, I think the motive is at least as much about fear of your own base. I think that it's that, that eliminationist rhetoric that is deeply seated among highly motivated base voters uh, in our terrible, 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 terrible primary system uh, creates an out a disproportionate incentive disincentive for cooperation. So whatever you really think in your heart of hearts, if you're Joe, B so what you're talking about is an approach like George Bush took when he started out, which is. Reach out to find an issue on which you think you can work with the other side. I disagree with this is what we're always saying, right? I disagree with you about 80% of the stuff. Why can't we work on the 20% where we do agree? So Bush picked education, uh, a, a, an issue on which there was then and still is bipart some bipartisan consensus on problems and solutions. Um, and that was why his first push was with Ted Kennedy. And that's why Bush reached out on no child left behind and decried the soft bigotry of low expectations. So that was the Bush approach, the Obama approach, the Trump approach were the reverse, right? And when you listen to an upcoming podcast that I recorded with Eric Cantor, you will hear a play by play description of, uh, the, how that went with Obama and how it heightened the the gateway to the Republicans' eventual undoing under Trump uh, was was the resentments that were engendered by the beginning of the Obama presidency. Right? He said, "I won, you lost, so I get to do what I want to do." I think Biden's not as bad as Trump, uh, and probably not even as uh, probably not as bad as Obama on that stuff. I think he has to acknowledge as he's trying to do this stuff that the last thing that Lisa Murkowski needs is to be seen right now as too chummy with Joe Biden. I hear a lot of complaining from Republicans about how Biden, he hasn't even brought Kevin McCarthy over to XYZ. Uh, how many times have you talked, one of the questions for Biden, how many times have you talked to Mitch McConnell? The last thing that Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell need right now is to say, Oh man, we have a great relationship. He was just over here the other day. We were hanging out. We got all kinds of great plans to make America wonderful for everybody. And we're really excited. That would be death for both of their desires. So I don't think they can talk about that. Okay. So I, I hear what you're saying and I don't necessarily disagree with it, My, but I, 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 to put, put aside the eliminationist rhetoric, right? Put aside the, the, the stuff from the Star Trek where one half of the face was was white on the left <laughs> side and the other half was white on the right side. Uh, but um, 
you know, which I believe that episode was called Let Them Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And the guy who played the Riddler was one of the dudes. Anyway, put all that aside. <laughs> um You just uh, dunked on me. That was just a pop culture, like a windmill dunk over my <laughs> head that you just delivered right there. That's fine. Um my point is is that if if you actually want I mean there there's something actually redeeming in my analysis about this, which is that both parties are actually emphasizing policy over politics, right? They're like, there's all these things that we want to get done. We feel like we've taken this massive step back or step in the wrong direction when the other side was in power. And so now we're going to, we're going to push for everything in like the HR one, you know, the nationalize the election stuff. And, uh, all this expansion of the welfare state stuff in the in the in the American Rescue Plan. Um, by the way, serious tangent, which is like really inappropriate, but it's been in my head for a little bit. So the initials of American Rescue Plan are ARP, right? Right. I learned from the dispatch that the RNC issued two statements about this one point nine trillion dollar um, uh, behemoth only after it passed. So basically. The GOP was silent except for the really pressing issue of, of green eggs and ham on this massive expansion of the welfare state. Because they wanted it. The- right. But they didn't want enough to vote it, vote for it. Well, they right? didn't want to be seen. It's uh, like riding a moped. It's uh, it's all fun until your friends see you on it, and then it's no good. So they wanted it to pass. Like a lot of things that pass in Congress, Republicans, plenty of Republicans wanted that legislation to pass, but could not be seen supporting it. So uh, the only reason I'm going off on this tangent is that Republicans couldn't have lost the ability to criticize massive spending and debt and deficit and all that kind of stuff. And they've, they're basically, they've lost their tongues, which brings me to my pop culture reference. In the world, according to Garp, there are a oh, bunch baby. of crazy feminists who, in solidarity with someone who was horribly mistreated, um, cut out their tongues. And at the end of the movie, they just all go around yelling "arp, arp" because they can't say their G's while they're chasing Robin Williams. And it feels like there's some connection there that I couldn't make in the G file between not being able to articulate anything about the ARP, ARP, and world according to Garp. But we don't have to go. It was at his mother, and and this is of course a book too. Uh, it's at his mother's funeral. Yes. And uh, she was a hero. She ran a home for the women. I can't remember the name of the woman. He meets the actual woman whose tongue was cut out by her husband uh, as a punishment for back talking. So these other women cut out their tongues uh, or the, the front of their tongues in solidarity with her. And Garp's mother ran a home to take care of these gals. And then he, when he shows up in drag, eighty in the eighties, there was a lot of drag. Uh, there was he, he showed particularly with Robin Williams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 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 Doubtfire nineties, probably, but yes. Uh, the uh, and he shows up in drag at his mother's funeral, and then she sees him and says, "Orp," right, and which is not supposed today. to be as funny as it is. Yeah, and and that's today's GOP. Anyway, so back to the point at hand. <laughs> um, uh, pending, pending. So I, my only point is is that if like Bill Clinton understood how you wreak havoc with an opposing party, or or forget Bill Clinton, all these people, you know, all these historians who got around Joe Biden and whispered in his ear 
not you are mortal, which is what they should be whispering, uh, but uh, you are FDR. Or is and, it, am I, am I LBJ or FDR? What do you think? Let me try this jacket on. Does this look good on me? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, and as someone who's been documenting how basically every single president since FDR has wanted to be the next FDR, um, I find this very annoying. Um, he, FDR knew how to split his opponents. FDR knew how to like, re, you know, dangle stuff that divided the opposition. Um, there were pro FDR slates in the Democratic Party, or the pro New Deal slates in the Democratic Party, and there were there were non pro New Deal, and he knew how to divide all those guys. He knew how to like, you know, for for fifty years, the Democrats actually knew how to like give just a little bit of the backsheesh to the Republicans to keep them happy, so that they didn't actually try too hard to win back the majority. And you could have a little bit more. I mean, like I remember what was his name, the guy that Gingrich replaced. Um, Oh, uh, 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 Foley. No, 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 no. Uh, the Republican, the minority leader for years and years. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm going to say that it was Robert Michael. Yep, Bob Michael. Okay. So there's this great line from him where he said for most of his tenure, he woke up and looked in the mirror and said, how am I going to fail today? Or how am I going <laughs> to lose today? Right? Yep. Democrats used to be good about doing that, about keeping stringing the Republicans along. And anyway, my only point is Biden, if you really wanted to wreak havoc in the GOP, and you can only do it at the beginning of your presidency, is create this kind of uh, division within the other side's ranks by giving some people on the other side stuff that they want that um, co-ops them and gives, and, you know, if, if Obama had gotten... 25% of Republicans to vote for the stimulus plan. Republicans couldn't message uniformly against it. They would have to say, you know, it, it all, and when the economy didn't recover, they, they couldn't do this is the Obama economy this, in the same way that they did because Republicans would have some ownership of it. And that, if you really want to sort of force change on the other party, you got to work with the other party. If you want to leave it in this purest form, you give them every opportunity to say, I tried to work with them and I couldn't because they're so extreme. I mean, I, I, I just, I think there's a the self-perpetuating cycle of thinking this next election is the last election. It's our last chance is, it's in part because of this idea that being, and I'm not a huge fetishizer of bipartisanship, but I think it's as a cold, cruel way to screw with your opponents is by, by bribing them in effect into uh, dividing amongst themselves. Uh, FDR was uh, not that good at dividing Republicans. Uh, he had plenty to do with divided Democrats, uh, and and his and his work his work there. Uh, but when you know, he had that I, many Democrats, you were in effect right, right, dividing right. Li liberals from conservatives, right? Exactly. And and uh, this is a guy whose own vice president re rebelled against him uh, in ahead of the. 1936, I always point out, is the is a crucial year in American history. Uh, but he's he was he was against his own vice president, John Nance Gardner, on court packing and a variety of other issues, and it played out uh, in interesting ways. But it was Sam Rayburn who was the master of this stuff. Uh, it was Sam Rayburn uh, who the New Deal should belong as much to Sam Rayburn as it belonged to. 
uh, FDR. Sam Rayburn and his disciple, uh, the aforementioned school teacher from the Pedronales Valley of Texas, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I just had to look it up, but uh, Rayburn traded off the speakership with uh, Republican uh, Joe Martin from Massachusetts twice. Um, it wasn't in the 40s. There was more there was more competition than we like to think uh, in, in control of the House. And Rayburn had what he called the Board of Education. You've heard it talked about. That's where Harry Truman was hanging out uh, when he found out that FDR had died. Uh, and the Board of Education was where they hang out, they they hung out to smoke cigars, uh, drink whiskey, and play cards. But it was called the Board of Education because that's where he would bring members to give them some learning, right? That that there would be discipline there, there would be instruction there, and that the speaker would let you know what was going on. The lost art, Peggy Noonan calls it patriotic grace, um, the lost art in politics is this, and uh, Boehner, John Boehner spo- has spoken to this, and I'm eager to read his forthcoming book to find out more about it, but here's the thing. The real negotiation in politics isn't the policy. It's the spin of the policy. How are we going to describe this? So let's say you have a, a shutdown fight. Let's say you have some intractable problem, but it has to be resolved for whatever reason. You've got a cliff coming up. The way it used to work would be that the discussion from with the principals would be who is going to have to take a public beating on this. And you would get more stuff in your interest if you were the one who was going to have to go out and say, ah, they got us again. Oh, that, that, that the, the theater, the political theater was part of the negotiation. And John Boehner needed Barack Obama badly. He needed Barack Obama to say, oh, you got me again, John. Oh, I can't believe you did it this time. Because what what Obama needed was Boehner in a position to deliver votes on tough legislation. But he refused. What he did was say he was going to break the fever in the Republican Party, say Rush Limbaugh is the real leader of the Democrat of the Republican Party to elevate Donald Trump because he was going to fix the Republican Party by giving it a taste of its own medicine. Thanks loads, President Obama. <laughs> that was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, the you, there has to be an understanding among, and this goes back to. Um, I don't know why I'm citing the the Jonah Goldberg lexicon so deeply today, but this is Parliament of Pundits problems, right? You have people who are not interested in doing the work of government. You have inter- you have people who see government service as an avenue to their own celebrity, their own notoriety, and and themselves. And what Biden needs is a strong Mitch McConnell. The stronger Mitch McConnell is within the Republican conference, the better it is for Joe Biden's ambitions to deliver on the policy priorities that matter to him. I believe very much that Joe Biden wants to do what Bill Clinton did and make a grand fiscal bargain. I think he would love to. Yes, he wants to spend $3 billion and then another billion through the tax code. Yes, it's all goo-goo. It's, you know, it's uh, when when infrastructure includes elder care, you know that you're talking about something that's not really infrastructure, but it's all part of Biden who wants to go back to the times where the negotiation that that currently 
the spin is non-negotiable, right? Every time you're going to say either I won or the other side is so rotten that I could not possibly work with them because they want to destroy America. Those are the only two, those are the only two acceptable branding things. I think Biden is willing to go back to how it was and make the spin part of the sale. Interesting. Interesting. I, I will, I will have to digest this and noodle this a little bit. Have you told America about your haircut, by the way? Uh, word's gotten out on the street, you know, um, uh, and this is now I'm like three weeks into it. Uh, so this is like gotten a little long, but yeah, no, it's exciting. Um, small children don't like run and hide behind their mother's skirts when they see me coming down the street anymore. Well, after your, after your, you, you got, you got it cleaned up. As I recall, the last time I was, I was with you, you had gotten it cleaned up, but it had, it had produced an unfortunate, um, community theater director vibe. There was a, it, it had, you, a, a bob and a beard do not go together really yeah, well. I felt like I so should have been on a good. box of oats, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the upside. You could have, you could have put on like a black bowler hat and gone as a Quaker. Yeah. 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 So, but I speak of Quaker. So like, how well do you know the English civil war stuff? Uh, I know something about it, which puts me in the 1% of Americans, but I don't know, but I don't know too much. So I was, uh, as, as, as listeners know, um, I've been reading some political theory stuff that keeps, that has a lot to do with the English civil war and the glorious revolution. And there's some of that in, in suicide of the West, but I finally got around to listening to this podcast revolutions where it goes through the, the, basically the entirety of the English civil war, which was really useful for me because I knew like I had silos of information about some stuff, but just like the through line of the plot, I was, I, whatever I had read in the past, I kind of half forgot. And, um, it was really, really interesting. I mean, I, my eyes glazed over a little at some of the battles. I mean, oh, so some of the pikemen didn't really fight too hard. Okay, whatever. Right. And, and what's always great in those kinds of things is, and I say this as somebody who uh, wrote about the Battle of Culloden for his final, for, for his, for his uh, final uh, collegiate uh, work for my degree in history. Uh, you're talking about like 900 guys with sticks and it's being treated like it was the Battle of Midway. And you're like, oh, this is actually kind of sad. Well, but the whole thing was kind of sad because by the, it was really much more Game of Thrones than I realized. I mean, without the yeah, dragons, yeah, yeah, and just that everybody, everyone switched sides, switched alliances. The stuff that they got into the war about, or the first civil war about, was they then switched. And I finally actually now understand Presbyterianism in a way that I never really did before, which is in yes. and of itself worth it. Um, Yes, and, and, uh, and you'll see this. I was at Williamsburg uh, recently, uh, and uh, with uh, my man children, and on the there is a a plain white Presbyterian meeting house next to the Capitol at Williamsburg. And do you know what our original name? I'm I'm an a, a, an Anglican now uh, by church membership, uh, but a Presbyterian at heart. And the name is Dissenters. They didn't have a name. Those who dissent or dissenters. <laughs> so they must have been really popular. Like, oh, what, which one do you go to? Oh, the one everybody hates. The, the, the plain white one over there. <laughs> um, and I, So the, you, one, you learned. Yeah, I've learned a lot. And, and, and one, of the, one of the somewhat depressing takeaways, you know, when David French, our colleague David French, came out with his book about how it's possible we have a civil war, my 
he wasn't saying it's likely. He was just saying, here's how it work. I was pretty skeptical. And then he made a case. And then you had a lot of idiots saying things like Texas should secede and Wyoming should secede and all this kind of thing. Oh, okay. It's not that dumb. And, um, uh, and then listening to how the issue it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's similar to the American revolution where like, it's very difficult for us today to understand how like the sugar tax and the stamp act and these kinds of things prompted people to say, I got to get my musket and kill the British. You know, I mean, it's like, it seems like small bore things, but they become invested in our ideological matrices, you know, in ways that we invest much more in them. You know, I mean, like how many people were this close to wanting to grab their muskets over, you know, um, transgender story hour or whatever it was. And, um, and I don't know, it made me more appreciative of how small, uh, materially small or prudentially small disagreements uh, that are ideologically huge can actually see the system fall apart. And there's this line from the, I think it's James Harrington, who's a philosopher at the time of the English Civil War, who's talking about, you didn't get a civil war because um, you, the government didn't dissolve because of the civil war. The civil war happened because the government dissolved. Just the dis dysfunction happened so badly over so much stupid stuff that, um, I mean, like Charles I wanted everybody to use a, a common book of prayer, which to some people seemed like popery run amok. And I don't mean the stuff that smells good. I mean, like, you know. No, the, the, and the, ver the very things. Is, yeah, the, the very, the very things uh, that, uh, you know, you have to, the, the thing about the, the tutors, it, the, you, Henry VIII was no theologian uh, and, neither, and neither was Elizabeth. Uh, they found, they found, uh, great interest in reform theology as it related to their political power, right? Uh, Henry VIII would have been a Roman Catholic. He would have been a, uh, he would have been the head of the Church of England, uh, or he would have worshipped the flying spaghetti monster in order to achieve his political goals. And his political goals were having been perched so tippily, like a pig on stilts, atop of the British government uh, by his father, who had essentially used French money to buy, and Bosworth, you know, to purchase the resources necessary uh, to become the king, right? So Henry VII to Henry VIII, Henry VIII knows that he needs an heir. We uh, write Henry VIII down now as it was vanity or he was a psycho or something. His father had won the throne through on the field of combat, backed by a foreign enemy. And there were those plotting against him at all times. His, his need of an heir was not for male pride right? It was a practical consideration that if there was any question about who the, the right claimant to the throne was, it was going to be real bad news for him. Uh, and the fact that his daughter understood those lessons and then delivered it with just an iron fist, right? Uh, Elizabeth's anti-Catholicism wasn't because she was so, because she was Charles, she was Oliver Cromwell. Uh, it was because that represented the threat to her queenship and her power. And that's why she did it. And I don't think that we're anywhere close to a civil war today. 
I don't think that we, anybody was going to take up arms over drag, drag queen story hour. I think that's a bunch of Twitter jockeys, uh, uh, looking to try to win a stupid game of who can generate the most outrage and be the most outraged. I do think, though, that the incapacity and infirmity of the American system as currently constituted could eventually produce a civil war, not for ideological reasons, but for practical reasons. That if we can't figure out a way to make the American system work the way it's supposed to work, uh, and we just continue to this sideways drift into deficit spending, uh, a, a government that doesn't work like it's supposed to, uh, we will we will be planting the seeds for revolt. Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I I don't think a civil war is likely, um, even remotely likely. Um, I don't rule it out the way I once did, and um, uh, in part because you know if you if you read David's thing, it's it's not like he thinks it's we're gonna have uh, you know Powers Booth throwing water into the campfire. Um, in the middle of, you know, Colorado, uh, as, as we talk about fighting the Nancy Pelosi's forces, you know, uh, west of the Rockies or anything, uh, but, love it. um, but we, you could see how the, I mean, first of all, we now, his point was that it would start with some cultural war issues that become legal issues that become constitutional issues that become political issues. Um, and my point is, is that, that the, the the need to make the it, 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 the need to make the issues the things that drive your will to power um is very powerful i mean you talk about uh, you know uh, elizabeth and and henry the 8th you know there's the famous line from napoleon where he said um i do, in religion i do not see the mystery of the incarnation so much as the mystery of the social order he liked religion because it was useful to keep everybody well behaved and um constantine yes absolutely in an age where we have people doing boutique bespoke religion that they often won't even concede as religion, you know, uh, social justice, I think maps really well as religion. Um, Juice cleanses. See, uh, <laughs> how these little tiny social issues, I mean, actually tiny, I mean, they're significant, they're important, but how they can become these fulcrums for much, much larger and scarier things. And, um, and I was much more optimistic um, you know, sanguine is one of those fun words. I believe it means both, uh, bloody, bloody and, and, um, cheerful and cheerful. Right. And it's like, yeah. no, I'm not worried. My blood's up. I'm, I'm good. So I went from one kind of sanguine and then I saw the sanguinity of the revolt on January 6th, or it's like, it's another word that drives me crazy is sanction, right? Sanction means to punish and also to permit, make up your friggin' mind. It's like flammable versus cleave or are flammable versus inflammable. Um, yes. Which is it? <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, before, before January 6th, um, I was, you know, I was totally, this can't, you know, if you described on January 1st what happened on January 6th, well, come on, that's not going to happen. Um, or the head of the Texas GOP coming out and saying, okay, it's, it's time for Texas to seriously consider seceding because of Something that historians are going to have as much trouble explaining as a lot of this English Civil War stuff, which was seems so hard to get your head around. Um, anyway, that's my only point. Is so the, re the reason I, I point to 1935 and 1936 as the crucial years for the American experiment, uh, as such crucial years for the American experiment, 
was the system was not working. It, the system was demonstrably not working. Um, and the reason that Huey Long, the reason that Father Coughlin, the reason that other demagogues, the reason that uh, FDR, so you have FDR and the progressives sweep back into power in a way that they hadn't even been in Wilson's day. And they do what progressives always do, which is attack the American system of government. Progressivism is about the deficiency, the perceived deficiency of our constitutional order and Republican government. More democracy is necessary to uh, alleviate the ills of the mass. And why can't the wisdom of the people substitute for the wisdom of our leaders? And the, the diabolical, un-American undertakings of the Roosevelt administration after 1932 had unmoored, right, our understanding, uh, Americans' understanding about it had expanded the Overton window substantially, but it did not produce the results that were promised, which invited people right and left to say, you know, maybe fascism is pretty good, right? I went and says Joe Kennedy, right? Maybe it's maybe Hitler's onto something uh, that um, Lindbergh and others. So it was right and left that said, eh, Americanism is dumb. You know, it's outdated. This constitution is outmoded. This isn't an effective way to do it. We were saved by John Nance Gardner and a bunch of other people who said, no, we'll do it by the book. We'll just go back to the Constitution. And what I love about America and what makes America special in many, many ways is our source code and the fact that when we don't know what to do and we get scared and we get confused. When I listen to Barack Obama give a speech for the Democratic Convention from the Constitution Center in Philadelphia that you could have given right? That any conservative, constitutional conservative could have delivered what you were here. When uh, Martin Luther King stands at Lincoln's feet four score and, uh, about fourscore and seven years after Lincoln had given the Gettysburg Address, he alludes to Lincoln, he alludes to the purpose of liberty and our charter and all of that stuff. When we get confused and things get weird, we can run home to mama and that's what makes America different because instead of trying to say that France should be for Frenchmen, or we need to go back to this way. What is pure? What is it to be purely American? The answer is pull the manual back out of the stupid glove compartment. It's the same reason we have the Ten Commandments. You need an owner's manual for doing this, and we have one. And the reason that I think that we will not have a civil war in my lifetime, though the way I eat, I don't know. Uh, that may not be saying too much, but <clears throat> the uh, the reason I don't believe we will have a, a civil war in my lifetime or my children's lifetimes is because we have not reached a point of incapacity as we did in the mid-1930s uh, where people say, eh, maybe pitch this thing. Maybe the, maybe the American experiment is kaput and it's time for authoritarian strongmen. Uh, maybe I'm just still cranky and overtired from my cross-country drive. <laughs> I think, but I think on most days I'd probably agree with you, but, um, you know, I think things like the 1619 Project Right. Part of part of the assumption behind that is to basically say that whole constitutional convention, which is supposed to be our source code. No, 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 no. You don't need to pay as much attention to that. You don't even need to pay as much attention to the Reconstruction Amendments because we really began 100 years before that. And that's the real project of this country. And I think that that kind of stuff, the critical race theory stuff, um, plus, you know, the weird, weird. I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, going to your point, uh, Jimmy Kerchick did a great piece a while ago for NR about 
where he like traveled amongst the alt writers when they were high on their own farts. Um, and the, and, and the things they would say about how, you know, how they think contemporary conservatives are fools because they're quote unquote parchment worshipers. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why radicals really find the constitution so inconvenient and want to get it out of the way is because it's like this giant friggin' anchor that keeps the boat of the ship of state from going in the direction that they really want it to go in. I think Don, you're, Donald, Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren want to get rid of the filibuster for the same reason, right, which exactly. is they want the power. It's not because the filibuster is good or bad, but it's because they want the stuff that that eliminating the filibuster will give them. And that's just January 6th would not have been possible. I, I listen. I think it's, you know, it's fine. The Justice Department is is going after the Proud Boys and going after whatever. Um, but of course, the core conspirator for January 6th did it in public and he was the president of the United States. January 6th, the Proud Boys wouldn't have, they, you know, they would have been too busy modeling their cool new uh, yellow and black looks uh, in, uh, in spandex to have uh, uh, stormed the Capitol. It was only because you had a demagogic, anti, uh, fundamentally opposed to the American system of government as the president and his contempt for the Congress and his, con the, the, the point about January 6th isn't that America is shot through with right-wing militant um, white nationalists, but the point of January 6th is when you put a demagogue on a throne and worship him uh, like a god, uh, he is going to lead you astray. And that's why incapacity is the friend of wickedness, right? Donald Trump's, the chance for Donald Trump to steal the election uh, was born out of the sense among Republicans that the government doesn't work and things don't work. Nothing works anymore. Everything's a, everything's a disaster. All right. I, the, the major takeaway I have from this is that I should be better prepared and more well-rested before making oh. comparisons of American politics to the English Civil War. Um, no, but, I think I, I disagree. I think, I think you are exactly right. You are exactly right that it was not the Civil War that caused the dissolution of Parliament. It was the dissolution of Parliament that caused the Civil War. We're saying the same thing. When if the system breaks down, weird stuff becomes possible, right? The bad stuff gets let out when the system that you have doesn't work. The Weimar Republic, we have example after example after example, which is when things fall apart, the, the, the founder's gift to us was like Shakespeare, a per, almost perfect, intimate knowledge of human nature. And they're right. And it's, it plays out again and again and again in our experience. And that's why we just got to run home to mama. Yeah. I mean, that's, so there's this, the, the major takeaway on, on this podcast about the English Civil War is that at the end of the day, the English don't know how to make it work without a monarch. Like they can balance democracy and, and rule of law and all these kinds of things. But the system, it's kind of like Superman's fortress of solitude. It needs that weird crystal to get, keep the whole thing going. Right. And, and so you may be right that after 20 years of, of uh, you know, duking it out 
in the tall grass between competing forces of America will like, you know, we really do need a constitution and we need to, to follow because we don't know how to make this work without one. And maybe we'll have that kind of restoration, you know, after we're spending years eating canned goods and drinking puddle water. Uh, <laughs> no, no, look, I, I actually, I, I am not trying to be apocalyptic here. I think the catastrophization of politics is terrible. I'm just, I, I, I'm on this jag in my head about the fragility of our system is more fragile than I appreciated. So that's all. I, 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 I agree with that. I very much agree that uh, it goes away, right? Uh, it, the what did Reagan say? You're only ever two generations away from tyranny, right? That it's that it's that it that it can happen very quickly, and it could happen very quickly here. Um, but frankly, I don't think civil war is nearly nearly as much of a threat as a lumpen nation that shuffles along into, dare I say, down a road to serfdom. Uh, and, and, and watching the conduct of Republicans in the past, looking at Marco Rubio acting as a union organizer against Amazon, <laughs> uh, looking, uh, uh, the, 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 the $2,000 check, all the, all of that stuff, you know, there is, a, you know, somebody get me William Howard Taft because we don't have a conservative party in the United States right now. We have two liberal parties. We have two big government parties, one of which is culturally conservative and the other one is culturally liberal. But we don't, there's nobody speaking for limited, there's hardly anyone in power right now who is making a loud affirmative argument in favor of limited government and constitutional principles. Yeah. And even fewer of them who have any credibility when they do try, you know, because right, exactly. Oh yeah. They'll, they're finding it now. Right. Ted Cruz is looking, he's looking down in the rushes along the creeks of uh, the Rio Grande. Uh, he's looking to find the constitution again. Maybe it's out there. All right. On that uh, cheery note um, <laughs> where I come down uh, on the side of the, the living will envy the dead and, Chris comes down on the more optimistic side of the living would still rather not be dead. Uh, but on, on the barely. whole, on the whole, on yeah, the whole, exactly at the margins. Uh, Chris, <laughs> thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I apologize for being a little sort of mule headed um, and incoherent, but you're used to hardly. That, so my, my privilege. All right. So I guess we went a little long there. Um, I want to apologize to Chris or I want to thank Chris for, for, for coming in and sticking around for as long as he did. Um, also I somehow, I had this moment of panic in the beginning of it where it sounded like I realized I sounded like I was like defending the Georgia law and defending the Republicans doing the stuff that they're doing in the States. And I, I think I corrected it. My point wasn't to say that everything the Republicans are doing at the state level is good. And any place where it's predicated on this notion that the election was stolen is total BS as far as I'm concerned. But having like listened to the Sunday shows in my car as I was barreling through um, the, the, the heartland of this great country, um, uh, the just assumption that, um, that any corrections to what we did during a pandemic uh, to make the election possible was evidence of Jim Crow just really got under my skin. And that doesn't mean that I approve of everything that the Republicans are doing in terms of trying to basically target voters they think might vote for the other um, 
party. It's just that I think that there's just a lot of stupid talk out there. A lot of, a lot of people running with narrative rather than um, running with facts and all of this. And, um, uh, but I don't want, I, anyway, I just didn't want it to make it sound like I was, um, you know, just sort of endorsing everything the, the GOP was doing in places like Arizona and even in, in Georgia. Um, and I will say about driving across the American heartland, uh, Missouri is really pretty people it, or Missouri. Um, and it's got a lot going for it. I spent the night in, um, Columbia, really cool little town. And, um, and I don't know if it's because the snows just melted or not, or if because there's a cutbacks in social services, but man, uh, somebody out there in, in a position of responsibility has got to do something about the roadkill because if like they made a Disney version of like, uh, the road to Fallujah or something, um, it would look a lot like I 70 through Missouri right now with just Bambi and Thumper and, 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 uh, Hey, now that Marvel's owned by Disney, um, the raccoon from guardians of the galaxy, I mean, just, they're just all littered across the sides of the roads in ways that are like almost disturbing. Like maybe there's some sort of anthrax outbreak or something. And, um, as you know, I'm a softy for charismatic megafauna. Um, so I found it disturbing and someone should do something about it. Anyway, uh, I bet that's what everyone thought I was going to close on here. Uh, it's good to be home. It's good to be almost well-rested. Um, it's good to see that the weather is finally warming up. And um, it's good to talk to you guys, which and I'm grateful to everybody who's been tuning in and has been indulging me. Thanks again to David French and to Chris for subbing for me a bit. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Republican minority leader list. We're going to get this because it's going to drive me crazy otherwise. And, you know, given uh, how high I am, um, just give me two <laughs> seconds here. You've got to stop putting the edibles next to the coffee pot. It's a big mistake. It's just too much temptation. <laughs>